This is Aaron Ross, co-author of From Impossible to Inevitable, how SaaS and other hyper-growth companies create predictable revenue. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide at the top of the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is a really cool app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome back Aaron Ross to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the second edition of the book that he has co-authored with Jason Lemkin, From Impossible to Inevitable, How SaaS and Other Hyper-Growth Companies Create Predictable Revenue, published by Wiley. Aaron Ross is a keynote speaker and is the best-selling co-author with Mary Lou Tyler of Predictable Revenue called The Sales Bible of Silicon Valley, based on an outbound prospecting system that's created more than $1 billion across Salesforce.com and, and many other companies. He is the co-CEO of PredictableRevenue.com. And interesting fact, Aaron is married with 10 children, half through adoption, loves motorcycles, and keeps a 25-hour work week. Aaron, congratulations on the second edition of From Impossible to Inevitable, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. I'm happy to be here. And I think you mentioned that was the, uh, the first time you've done a redo. Yes. Here. This, after 235-something interviews, this wow. is the very first uh, interview with an author about a book that has been on before, but this is this, this uh, must have been three or four years ago. This is the second edition, and in full disclosure to the listeners, it is one of my favorite books. I have written about it. I have given talks that include this. Aaron can't get me to shut up about his book, and there's certain things in the book that I I used because to I've tried so hard to get you to shut up about. <laughs> right. 
right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and here we are again. But seriously, it is one of my favorite books. I borrow from it liberally. I've talked about this. I've, I've talked about your other book. And just a fun fact, there are two friends of mine who live in the north of England, uh, Rob and Kennedy, and they have a podcast called Three Marketers Walk Into a Podcast. And I was recently interviewed on it, and we were chatting and exchanging podcasting tips and one thing or another. It was a lot of fun uh, talking to them. And I said, gosh, you know, there's hundreds of authors I've had on the Marketing Book Podcast. Is there anybody that I might be able to try to help uh, introduce you to who could possibly be a guest. And without hesitation, they both said one name, Aaron Ross. No, none others. They said isn't, Aaron isn't Ross. That, isn't that two names, Aaron Ross? Well, first and last name. But <laughs> I appreciate your attention to detail, Mr. Ross. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, they were interested in many others, but they said we've based our whole, they have a, a SaaS company and they based their whole business on, on your books. And I introduced them to you and you said, oh, that's perfect. I'm moving to uh, Scotland about two hours from them soon. Uh, I, I want to meet more people from there. Yeah, Edinburgh this year. That's great. So if you're, you uh, know, for all the listeners not? in that area, please reach out to, uh, to Aaron. He's, uh, he needs a big welcome there, a big marketing yeah. book podcast welcome. We could use some more friends there. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll make many. Plus with all yeah. the kids, you know, I, I, I met more people through my kids than I ever did as a grown up. So, but I didn't have 10 kids. So, you know, props to you, Mr. Ross. And yes, to the listener, towards the end of the book, he actually explains how he manages a shorter uh, number of hours working and 10 kids. And it's, it's, it's just fascinating. So now I also have to say one other thing that longtime listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast will have been following, and that is that you have a degree from Stanford, and I've had more authors on the Marketing Podcast with degrees from Stanford than any other school. So clearly, uh, there is some sort of huh. agreement you must sign on your uh, application <laughs> that you will write a marketing or sales book. And uh, it was nice of you to throw a bone to your co-author who graduated from Harvard. You know, they need all the help they can get. <laughs> Try to bring him up on the ranks. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they're way back there. But seriously, I think there's been, uh, gosh, by this time, at least 20 authors who have, who have spent time there. And of course, there's a lot of authors from uh, Northern California. So before we get into it, I just wanted to read one excerpt and then talk about some of the big ingredients of, of hypergrowth and then get into these uh, questions. Uh, I almost didn't need to read the book because there's so much of it that uh, got me fired up reading it a second time and things that I talk about a lot, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of new information as well. So there's never been an easier time to grow a business. Ironically, though, while everyone else around you seems to be crushing their goals, does it feel like a struggle for you? If you needed to triple your revenue in the next year or three, would you know exactly how you would do it? Tripling isn't magic. It's not about the school you went to, luck, or working harder. There's a template that the world's fastest growing companies follow to achieve and sustain hyper growth. Whether you want to add 1 million or 100 million, the fundamentals are the same. You can grow your business two to 10 times faster in honorable ways that feel good to you, your employees and your customers. In fact, the truth is the best form of sales and marketing. This book shows you how to break growth plateaus and get off the up and down revenue roller coaster, showing you how to answer Three questions. One, why aren't you growing faster? Two, what does it take to get to hypergrowth? And three, how do you 
sustain it. So in the book, you talk about the seven ingredients of hypergrowth, and we won't have time to get into all of them, but I'd like to just quickly list what they are, and then we'll come back to a few of them that are particularly relevant to the marketing and sales folks. One is to nail a niche, and two is to create predictable pipeline, three is to make sales scalable, then double your deal size, do the time, it's always going to take longer than you think, embrace employee ownership, which isn't necessarily always financial, it could be uh, functional, and define your destiny. So Aaron, you write that lead generation is the number one lever that drives revenue growth, but if you can't predictably go out and generate leads and opportunities where you are needed, win them, and do it profitably, you're going to struggle. And spoiler alert for the listeners, there are no shortcuts to doing that. I wish I could tell you there are. (laughs) But Aaron, what are some of the clues that a company is actually not ready to grow? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Let's talk about that. Because I think you mentioned three questions. You know, the first one this book helps you answer is, you know, why aren't you growing as fast as you want? Because the most common problem for companies in, in trying to grow faster are that they're not ready to grow. Right? They don't have the, whether it's systems, the infrastructure, the model, there are many reasons why they're not ready to grow. And so if you're not ready and you're spending money on marketing or sales to grow and it's not working, you know, maybe you're just not ready. And I've dealt so. with clients like that, and that's why it was so painful reading this the first time a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. And since then, we've gone back and said to clients, look, we're in the Nets business, but first let's talk about your, your seeds and spears, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So the, there's a reason. The first part of the book, as you mentioned, it's called Nail a Niche. Nail a Niche. Because if you haven't done that, you're just not going to be ready to grow. And I'm going to refine, I'm going to, you know, there's all these terms out there like product market fit and who knows what else, but I'm going to be a little more specific in, in what it takes to be ready to grow. Great. So most, and most companies start off and use word of mouth relationships to referrals to get to several hundred thousand, several million dollars, maybe up to 10 million. And then they tend to, at some point they want to grow faster by spending money on marketing and sales. Um, if, if it doesn't work, <clears throat> the problem is, they haven't usually they haven't figured out how to market themselves to people who don't know them. It's like it's called cold marketing or cold prospecting, outbound marketing, outbound prospecting. Because there's an enormous difference. This is what people misunderstand. The difference between someone who comes in as a referral or, or who's heard of you and the amount of attention they're willing to give you versus someone who's never heard of you. The amount of attention they're willing to give you is like the Grand Canyon. So mm-hmm. again, you should use relationships and like whether your friends, family, network, um, investors, friends to get those first customers. But at some point, that dependence on relationships to for rev- for leads and revenue becomes uh, it's an accelerator at the beginning, and then it becomes a crutch, which stops you from doing the work you need to do to learn how to be able to market and sell, sell yourself without needing those relationships anymore. Right. And that actually might only be 15% of your potential growth, right? Well, there's this great book from oh, I don't know, decades ago called Crossing the Chasm. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Moore. Yeah, Jeff Moore. It's definitely worth a read. Um, they sort of broke in these four different types of buyers out there. Right? There's um, 
I don't remember the exact terms, but sort of like the early adopters, there was the, basically the people who, uh, well, so let me step back. We're, we simplified that. I mean, when I look at this, you want to keep things simple. Really, there's like these psychological principles of why, um, what this kind of idea of nailing a niche means and how, what's the difference between um, selling to people who know you where there's some prior relationship versus people where there's not. So we divide it into two categories, early adopters and uh, mainstream buyers. Mm-hmm. So early adopters are the types of people that they see your product or service or you and they just get it. You don't have to explain it or very little. They, they, just, they just get it. Again, whether you have a services company, a product company, and they don't need a huge amount of justification to spend the money. They probably have some of the, they have the uh, internal buying influence and power they need to do that. And so they're the ones who are coming in um, and those early customers who are like, yeah, I get it, let's do it, and willing to take a chance on you. Then, and so we estimate, so Jason Lemkin and I, Jason, uh, founder of Saster, who we did the book together, you know, we just estimate okay, it might be 15% of the market. It's probably lower than that, but hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a minority. And then, as again, as you're growing, right, so you get to a few million and past that, and you want to reach out to more people who, again, they're not all the people who aren't calling you. And so if you're doing an outbound marketing, outbound prospecting, and you're reaching out to people who not only they don't know you, so they're willing to give you a tiny bit of attention, whether it's a cold email or a Facebook ad or whatever the, the way you're sort of touching them, you're, they're only going to give you a tiny bit of attention to kind of see whether or not they're interested. Right? A few seconds, half a second, 10 seconds. But then even if you start that conversation, they're the types that are, they're not going to get it right away. Like those early adopters, mm-hmm. the mainstream buyers are going to have to need more explanation and justification. And these are the ones where if you feel like you have to explain yourself five times over and over again, and you're repeating the same thing and you have to, unending, we need an ROI, this, we need to have a project plan, we need to have this, or that, because they need to have all those details filled out because they don't intuitively get it. Mm-hmm. And because they're also they might be, or they're selling to more people or, or bringing more people in. And for those kinds of buyers, again, this, this shift of how, in order to grow, you need to know how to ultimately becoming relationship independent is to be able to intrigue people and so intrigue people and interest them in conversations, even if without having to have a relationship ahead of time. So your messaging has to be very focused and tight and be results-based. You have to have a product or service that can really stand on its own Right, to go through those kinds of justification process with the ROI and the case study and the project plan, all the details and the, and the technical review and all that. It, and with these mainstream buyers, they're going to be much more risk averse. Mm-hmm. And it's like the product or service has to be able to stand on its own. It has to be able to, the value of what you're delivering has to be apparent to the buyer. And I'll give you an example. Most services companies, and right, I have a services company, predictablerevenue.com. And a lot of my customers, we have about 30 or 40 people a several million dollar business around outbound prospecting and expertise and so on. A lot of our customers come in because they've read my books, they know me, and whether I talk to them or not. Um, and so that brand, that relationship has been incredibly helpful to get the company to several million dollars. But now it can become a crutch because to get past that, you know, we have to redesign our products and services to be so obviously valuable to buyers that whether my name is on the company or not, or predictable revenues on the company or not, they would still want to buy them. Hmm. And that's where most companies get stuck. They're so used to selling to people who know them because, again, word of mouth, referrals, relationships, or customers are sitting their way, or there's this brand benefit 
um, and they start to try to market and sell themselves to people who don't know them, and they get stuck, and they're not sure why. Like, why aren't people getting this? Yeah, so related to that, uh, explain the difference, and it's a painful difference, between a nice-to-have and a need-to-have. That's great, because that's probably the simplest way to start to boil this down to, what do I do with this? So most businesses are trying to sell themselves to too many types of customers in too many ways. So if you step back and you look at, hey, your top, most of your top 10 or 20% of your customers, um, we do want to focus on the ones where there's been the most revenue. And you want to look at the ones, pick out, hey, which ones have been the easiest, the ones that were the easiest to close, sign, for the most money, and that, where you had the best results with them. At those years, look at the, let's look at those ideal customers. Now, how, are that, how is that group different from either the customers that didn't buy with you or the customers that bought but didn't work? And what we're really looking to do is say, yes, your product or service could be used by so many types of customers. It could be. But if they don't need you, right, if it's when, the, when it's a nice to have versus a need to have, if they don't need you, they're not going to buy or it's not going to work. If it's a nice to have to them, it just takes a lot of time and energy to evaluate, purchase, and implement something. So a need to have would be a hole in your roof that is leaking. A nice to have is painting the room yes. uh, in, the, in the home. Yep. You know, with a car, right? if you have a flat tire, you have to fix that. I, have to, I can't drive it, or I have to fix it. Getting the door locks fixed or getting the, you know, the oil temperature checked because there's a light on is a nice to have. The, my oil temperature light is on, but my car is working. I don't, I don't have to fix it now. Not right away. No, but you will see, I guarantee you will see these differences between the, when you say, like, hey, here's the nice-to-haves, companies who didn't buy, especially, and maybe it didn't work, versus the ones where it, they bought and it worked well. And how do you discern the differences? And again, it could be anything around size of company, people they had on board, what was going on, was there some sort of trigger event? Is there different funds? Is there different geographies? You're just looking for anything that could help you discern the differences between those two groups because then you can be much more insightful about not only focusing and targeting the right kinds of companies and identifying when they need you and why they need you. So not only the, you're, you can be so much more focused on them because you know how to find them, how to spot them. And it's a lot easier to message companies, a more specific group of companies, because your messaging can be much more targeted to them rather than when you're trying to write messaging that can appeal to anybody. You know, a simple example could be, Financial services companies, right? That's such a huge, if you say, hey, we target financial services companies. Okay, great. It's so broad versus if you say, hey, you know, we target mid-market insurance companies that focus on whose primary line of business is auto insurance. Mm -hmm. So there's these fears that come up frequently, which is, oh, well, we don't want to be too small. Our market could be so big. Like so many other people, everyone could use us. But when you try to serve everybody, you just, you become so vague and generalized that people can't hear your message. It's like a radio station saying, well, everybody likes this music. Like, why don't we we'll play rock and jazz and blues and uh, classical, right? So whatever they want, we could do that, mm-hmm. right? But if versus radio stations that say, you know, we're K-Rock and we're the rock station, right? People can tune into that very clear signal of like, this is what we stand for. This is our type of customer. And that makes it easier for them to say, oh, yes, we're interested in you and to see how you stand out from the noise. They're also able to t- articulate these are not who we're trying um, to appeal to. Yeah, here's when it's not a fit. Right, right. Because so we'll waste our time. One of the most important things is having deeper insights into your customers and your competition. Just that alone, I've seen so many companies win 
because of it. And whereas a lot of companies will focus more on their competition or their own operations. And you talk about the importance of walking in your customer's shoes, but you you write that you should not confuse meeting with customers and listening to them. And you say the more customers you listen to, not just pitch or sell to, the more you'll be able to think like your customers and most importantly, to empathize with them. So please explain the 20 interview rule. I talk about it all the time, but I need someone like Aaron Ross to say, look, <laughs> I'm not uh-huh. the only one. I'm not the only one banging the table about the 20 interview rule. Yeah, no, this is a great one from actually uh, co-author Jason Lemkin. But uh, so there's a section here, which ultimately, again, sort of this idea of nailing a niche. Um, and again, if you're in Europe or Canada, niche, nailing a niche is really, this is the starting point. Because if you don't do this, the money you spend on part two, which is lead generation, isn't going to work. And the money you spend on part three, which is making sales scalable, isn't going to work. So in this case, a lot of what's missing in terms of executive teams and salespeople and companies is this empathy of the customer. It's the, I know what it's like to be in my customer's shoes, which means I can write to them I can speak to them or I can create content to them in a way that they get it. Because most of the, most of the content that gets created, whether it's a, in sales emails, in blog posts, really is just come, it doesn't really, it's not really written for customers. It doesn't, like, a lot of marketing material is written, you know, it's like boilerplate marketing material. Or it's written know, for the CEO or the, the product engineers, yes. people who love their own product. Yes, it's written for the board, it's written for the investors, it's written for the executive team, right? We're getting feedback from the executives. Hey, executives, what do you think? Don't do that. Don't get feedback from your friends and don't get feedback from people internally because they, they're not your customer. So there's this, we end up with this marketing lane, which is very wordy and very jargony because mm-hmm. it's kind of, we want to sound fancy. We want to sound smart or that's just what we learned. And we don't have this really simple, direct, blunt language that appeals to the customer. So how do we get that? You know, in general, interviews is a, so we'll get to the 20 interview rule, but interviews is one way to do that. Um, sales calls, you know, more conversations when you're really listening. So the 20 interview rule is, came about when you're really starting for something like a company from, from scratch, or it's really new, it's a new product, it's new messaging. And so the first five interviews are, you know, getting your kind of like product and understanding right. And the next five interviews is around getting your pitch down. And the five, uh, the next five is around like validation. Um, I actually don't remember exactly how we broke it out, but the idea is more in a, people don't do enough interviews just to learn. Um, there's a difference between doing an interview because you're trying to like pitch something. You're trying to get someone, <laughs> right. you have an agenda, you have an, you have an, when you have an agenda besides learning, it's different versus you're just listening and what you're listening for is, here's an example, what you're listening for really in interviews, um, whether you have a product or not, if you're just doing, let's assume most companies here, you have a product and you're doing interviews around how to understand how to write the messaging differently. Mm-hmm. So it really resonates with your customers in a deeper way, in a more obvious way. In that case, what you're looking for is you're really looking for how does your customer think? What are the thoughts? Like, what are the thoughts in their head that they already are thinking about that you don't need to translate for them? So if I'm selling to a VP of marketing, Right, and that what they're you know, saying, what are you what are you working on? What's bothering you? What are you doing these days? Or, and you're looking for the lingo, which is you know I'm trying to get I got this metric, um, you know my my lead conversion rate's too low because I'm trying to get my SQLs up, and my pipeline is down, or my my social this that the other, and you're you're actually looking for those 
nuggets, like the words, like the key phrase. It's almost like a SEO search. What are the words, keywords, and key phrases they're saying or writing, right? Because that's that. Um, if I took those keywords, key phrases, and if I put them back into cold email or you know my, my blog post, um, but you're trying to like pull them out of their brain because let's go back to when you are marketing and selling to people who don't know you already and the amount of, of mental energy that they're willing to invest in figuring you out is very low. You want to reduce the, the translation of your material to their brains to zero if possible. So if you say we have, we sell, you know, we have, so I have a customer now who does an AI enterprise AI. We, we provide enterprise AI. We provide AI for your enterprise to solve problems. And you're like, okay, but I don't, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, what I'm not so, hearing is uh, anything related to that prospect's problems or pain, specifically yeah. such that the prospect might say, dang, it's like these guys have been listening in on my calls. It's like they, they really understand me yeah. and my, my problems. And let me just add, because I just had the pleasure of reading this, in the 20 interview rule, as I understand it, you have learn from the first five and confirm in the next five, in the last 10, or to filter out the nice-to-haves from the must-haves. There it's, you go. Yeah. yeah. It, but it's... That's, you know yeah. better than I do right now. Well... Uh, it's true, because there's so many ideas. Like, to me, if there's this uber trend of, of information overwhelm, too much content, channels, apps, everything, and the new, the, the future skill that's nailing a niche practice, this skill is, I would say, the number one counter trend to overwhelm, which is really about focusing and simplification. And it's hard when you can do you know, so many opportunities. How do you really refocus and simplify the things that matter most with the way in general, but also the, the value, the type of customer that you want to target and the value that you can bring to them? Right. And you also talk about how niche or niche it's not about going small. It's about being more specific and aligning with the pains and problems of your customers. So don't mm -hmm. think that, don't, don't misunderstand that niche does not mean small. It means more specific. And actually, as I like to say, there are riches in niches. Of course, I didn't come up with that. But also, yeah. uh, pigeonholes are stuffed with cash. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Oh, you've never heard that one? No. <laughs> um, I think True. I stole that from Brian Clark or Blair Ends or someone smart like that. But I just wanted to drop one little value bomb. You talk about elevator pitches, okay, or whatever, you know, we all hear these terms, whatever you want to call them. You recommend that whether you have a fancy pitch ready or not, the next time someone at a party asks you what you do, pretend instead that they asked, how do you help people? So when they say, who do you work for? What do you do? Instead, answer the question, how do you help people? Now, I want to go on to another section, and I have, I have to preach. I have to read from this, and it's the beginning of part two, and it's sure, about... Preach on, brother. Yeah. Can I get an amen? Create... Predict yeah, They're calling this, they call this the growth Bible now. So oh, excellent, yeah. excellent. You, said, you talk about the... I actually, I wrote on in my book, as I often do, I wrote, carve this in stone, and I wrote an arrow towards it. The painful truth, overnight success is a fairy tale. You're not going to be discovered with a viral video, post, or product that makes all your lead generation, <laughs> that'll make all your lead generation problems magically disappear. And then you go on to 
talk about how lead generation absolves many sins. Oh, I forgot about you know that Bible, you know the sins thing. That's a good yeah. That was a bad yeah. accident actually. Preach, brother. Accident. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, I think that was one of the blog posts I wrote a few years back about absolving sins. So you say you can have the best product, investors, or sales process, but without predictable ways to fill your revenue or sales pipeline, you're going to struggle. Predictable lead generation is the lever to create hyper growth, and it's more than throwing marketing campaigns online or on billboards, cold calling, or pumping out free stuff to give away. Aaron Ross, there are three types of lead generations, a three-legged stool if you want, Mm -hmm. seeds, nets, and spears. What are they? And why do too many companies obsess over a single form of lead generation and ignore the others? Great question. So this is something I discovered years ago and seeing why companies struggled to grow, especially companies that were growing. So um, the example in the book are the times is for a company we did $3 million last year, or it could be 30, doesn't really matter. Um, we'd had 3,000 leads. So next year, we're gonna, let's, let's double, let's get to 6 million in revenue, so we need 6,000 leads, we need twice as many, right? Wrong, so wrong, because a lead is not a lead is not a lead. Again, early days, most companies have so the seeds, nets, and spears really is un- helping people understand that there's word-of-mouth leads that are completely di- very different. Those are the seeds. Then marketing leads, right? These are the nets, right? The kind of one-to-many. Mm-hmm. And those are very different than the spears, which would be outbound prospecting or outbound business development leads. So they all have their pros and cons. And I think people get into trouble when they don't understand what's worked for them and what doesn't work. So let's go back to usually companies start off with building, getting to several million through relationships. Right. Like you right. talked about earlier, the seeds. Yep. The seeds. And the, the, the great thing about relationships or seeds is that they're the best kinds of leads. Yes. Right? Faster to close. I hope that's obvious. But the problem with them is they're hard to grow. They are hard to grow. You can't just spend money and, and, and grow your relationship-based leads. What you can do, we do recommend the best way to create more predictable seeds, right? Um, a predictable way to create more relationship-based leads is by investing in a customer success program. So really that means, uh, and this is a standard in Silicon Valley, in hyper-growth companies, which is uh, a person or team dedicated just making sure that your customers are successful, that they get value from the product or service they do, that they understand that value, and to have more um, documentation around testimonials or case studies or references. Mm-hmm. Right. So that will that will create more referrals and also uh, have customers stay longer and be happier. Right, That's- and Aaron, you say that if you're a CEO, you need to take customer success as seriously as marketing, sales, or product development. Maybe you should explain the difference between customer success and customer support. Yeah, let's do that. Well, customer success really... Um, started. I know it started at Salesforce. I don't know if it was before that, but that's where I at least I ran into it because we had a customer success team in the early days. You know, so I worked at Salesforce from 2002 to 2006, and you know it's one of these models where in the in the enterprise software days before, software company customer writes a big check, and then whether the project goes well or not, you got your money. And, you know, it's kind of the customer is where they are. In the SaaS model, subscription model. You know, it changed that, which is if your customer is not happy, they 
you know, can leave much more easily, right? And you don't get all your money up front. So there's a lot more incentive for the business models. And this is why uh, a lot of business models depend on customers who are successful, who are happy, mm -hmm. or satisfied in some way. The marketing world can learn a lot from the SaaS world about customer retention and subscription marketing, if you will. Yeah. And this doesn't have to be just for SaaS companies. It's just that's where the business model makes is kind of made it mandatory. So yes. people had to do this. But customer success, in my mind, really means that even from the from product design and target market selection is picking the right customers up front and servicing them so that they are happy, they get value from the company, from the from your service, and you're avoiding customers that are not going to be a good fit. So in other words, customer success is preventing, uh, a lot of ways it's preventing fires from being started in the first place. <laughs> it's fire prevention. Fire prevention, while customer support is fighting fires. Yes, oh, There's great. two sides of the same coin. Sometimes it can be combined, but really it's about um, you know being more proactive in really focusing on the right customers for the right reasons and, and giving them more attention and help to get off the ground and get value from whatever you do for them. Mm -hmm. And realizing, I would even say realizing, again, today with this, this I mentioned this Uber trend of overwhelm, Customers, I think more often than not, are depending on vendors to tell them what to do. Yes. These mainstream buyers who don't have that sort of uh, early adopter or leader, and they need more hand-holding. Maybe they always needed it, but maybe it's just more obvious that customers need more hand-holding. They want more direction from you. They want to be told how to make this successful. So customer success also can translate to education and teaching and best practices of your customers and how to run their business better in those areas that you affect. Right. So uh, seize nets and spears. Now, just so you know, the point you just made about fire prevention versus firefighting, I just added it to the bottom of a long list. Uh, the, on the top of the list, it's more stuff to steal from Aaron Ross, uh, with full attribution, of course. But chapter six, <laughs> for me, alone is worth the price of the book for any marketer. Now, you were nice enough to send me a copy of the book, but mm -hmm. it's about nets and it's about marketing. And I'm sorry, this is the third time I've got to quote from the, go <laughs> from the, from the gospel of Aaron. Okay. Out of a trillion ways to market. Okay. Now, let me back up. Nets. We're talking about marketing generated leads here. Yeah. So, we, yeah, so we've talked about that, seeds. Like billboards, online marketing. Right. Right. It's like so we're out of a trillion ways to market. Inbound marketing, or content marketing, is the most popular kid in school. It works, and it works for every company, unlike, say, outbound prospecting. The idea is creating marketing that customers love or learn from, inspiring them to want more from you, eventually buying your stuff. But inbound marketing has matured enough that we can't see the dark side. Inbound lead dependency and reactive cultures. But you say mm -hmm. still every business benefits from creating content. Explain this phenomenon going on here because just like with companies that think, oh, all we need to do is work our relationships. They are the ones that claim they get all their business from um, referrals. Or yep. companies that say we only do outbound. Or, or they look at a company like ours and they say, well, we're going to get our leads from you guys. It's like, oh, God, I wish that were the case. But uh, yeah. so the same thing is going on within the marketing, within the nets. It's like inbound versus outbound. It's this human brain desire for simplicity. <laughs> but you talk about how outbound is actually going to be growing 
much more in the next 10 years. What's, what are you trying to help these people understand who are looking for one or the other, but instead it should be like the Reese's Cup, yeah. uh, chocolate so, and peanut butter? Yeah, so let's step back, right? Seeds, nets, and spears. So relationship-based leads, you know, nets are marketing leads, and then spears are the outbound prospecting or the business development, really where there's like a human with a targeted list getting appointments. Yeah. All three of those are great, but they each have their pros and cons. And depending on the type of business and stage, you tend to want to focus on sort of one at a time to build it, mostly. So if you're early days and you're just trying to get your product off the ground with you know, customers, you really just need to focus on those, the customer success, right, the seeds. And then at some point, you get a little bigger. You, people tend to focus either on marketing, right, the nets, or outbound prospecting or business development, the spears, kind of depending on the business and your, basically what you feel passionate about. Some, more, some people are passionate about one or the other. Um, they all have their pros and cons. Right? This marketing. The great thing about marketing is you can sort of reach a lot of people. You can generate lots of leads, hopefully. Um, some the, good, some and, bad. They're not yeah, always yeah, going exactly. to be some big fish bad. and little fish. Yep. And you have content out there that could just sit out there generating you know, leads over time. The, the downside is a lot of those leads aren't going to be a fit. And they're generally going to be your average deal size will be a lot smaller right. than perhaps what you want. And they may be further along on their customer journey, if you will. Yeah, yep. maybe, sometimes, yeah, usually. Than some of the ones that you could reach by outbound prospecting where you are uh, helping them understand the problems they have that they might not have even been aware of. Yep, plus they're further on their buying journey and they're also talking to all your competitors. Yep. So there's these pros and cons, like level three, on the outbound prospecting side with Spears, some of the advantages are you can, you can go out and talk to other people who aren't calling you. Uh, you're going to have bigger deal sizes because you can be more. You will be more selective about the opportunities you p- pursue. Uh, the downside, you have fewer, right? So it's quality over quantity mm-hmm. with that prospecting. In marketing, so let's reflect, focus on marketing. So again, you most companies you want all three at some point. You don't do it all at the same time. And the content marketing. This works for everybody because whether you're a services company, product company, I mean, it always helps to put your, your message out there about yourself, what you stand for, what you can do, whether it's in blog posts and videos. Um, even if, I mean, blogs don't generally don't generate leads, but even if people uh, find you somehow or they meet you at a conference and they can go read about you, learn about you on your site, mm-hmm. a lot, there are lots of reasons why putting more of yourself out there is beneficial to any, any company. Uh, prospecting is a bit different. If you're a consultant, if you're um, in a super crowded market, it just may not, or if you have lots of just really small deals, like a customer's worth a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. Right. Outbound prospecting may not work. It's, it can get a little more complicated, but ultimately there's these pros and cons. And with marketing, you know, the, there's, I think we, I hope we did it. So in this book, we, uh, it's actually my VP of revenue, Mina Sandu, wrote this section on, three uncommon practices of hypergrowth CMOs. And what she, part of one, one of these three practices is really helping, I think, marketers try to, to, to differentiate this idea of inbound marketing and outbound marketing. Because the term inbound has kind of gotten associated with marketing and totally completely associated, but really there's inbound marketing and outbound marketing. And this is where I hope it doesn't get confusing with outbound prospecting, but outbound marketing is this idea of how can you use marketing techniques to reach out to new kind of markets and customers that aren't going to be contacting you. So PPC could be one. Mm-hmm. Types of events. Be different than content marketing, social media, social media marketing, 
which again, you're tending to try to like put things out there and people find you and come to you. So if she put more detail around those differences, that I think she, she's trying to help marketers understand that the way, again, sometimes your goals and the way you measure those different kinds of practice can be different. So that you can be more insightful about how do you, and how do you grow leads and how do you grow the like, right kinds of leads at the right uh, sort of financial margins. Okay, so outbound efforts, uh, outbound marketing, you say it's largely dismissed, misunderstood, and mislabeled. How, how so and why? Yeah, let's talk about over many years, there's this, um, there's the, the old practices are now not cool, right? And direct mail, cold calling, billboards, kind of classic marketing techniques. Now, of course, not everyone thinks that way, but as a generalization, people want, hey, how do we, why don't we just do scalable marketing and like the cool stuff like Instagram or, you know, Facebook ads. And so there's, I think, this lack of neutrality, this lack of unbiased viewpoints on here's all these marketing options we have which ones really might work best for us you know maybe it is some form of direct mail maybe it's not maybe because there's so many options and like there's the hot kids in town which is like face it was google now it's facebook it's always changing right because sure facebook everyone gets into facebook and then the prices go up and it gets more competitive it's already over uh it's probably you know, i hear it's already priced to market it's already competitive it's hard to make money at it so I was just, I did a workshop in Belgium a couple of weeks ago, and there's a company that had grown to several, 10 or $15 million in revenue in Europe, really off the backs of Google PPC, you know, so Google, um, you know, PPC paid media with Google is the, and then moved to Facebook. And he said in the last year or two, the cost of leads from Facebook, especially had doubled or tripled. And so it got to the point where they're not going to make money, like the lead gen costs on Facebook became unprofitable. And like, I don't know where I'm going to grow my company now. I need to find a new channel. So these channels always get, you know, eaten up and it's true every, everywhere. It's like the, the success of a channel makes it unsuccessful in a way. <laughs> the good marketers are arbitrage experts who are able to get in there quickly. But let me ask you this then. If, if a company's not quite sure what to do, what to get started, let's say they're at that 15% where they say, you know, we've, we've made uh, growth from that part that's before we cross the chasm. Um, we're ready to move on. What should we do? Would a good mental model for them to be thinking about uh, be, of course, their seeds, but should they then be at least trying to check the box or giving some consideration to Nets and Spears? Yeah, well, I think you know, every company is some form of all three if you really want to grow quickly. And I, I, you, you mentioned something important I want to come back to, which is companies that get stuck with one form of lead generation. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of fast growth tech companies get stuck with this product-led growth. Hey, we're going to create the best product and people are going to love it and they'll just tell their friends and that's how we won't need to market. We won't need to prospect. How we does that, how does that even, normally work, may, Aaron Ross? We may, not even, we may not even need to sell. Well, it works great for Slack. Yeah, and, and you know what? Someone wins the lottery every week. Someone wins the lottery every week, but I don't play the lottery. Right. There's enough stories where it creates that myth of, oh, if I just create a great product, yeah, everyone's going to come in and it's an overnight success. Everyone's right. going to want it. Right. Right. That's not true. So I think, again, we want, we want to be smart and insightful about this, which is different forms of lead generation will get us to different stages. Right. So great, having a great product or service will get us to a few million, or a few hundred thousand, a few million, typically. Having great marketing could get us to several million, several tens of millions, whatever you know, the level is. 
adding great outbound prospecting as well could again double that, like adding several millions, several tens of millions. Or, you know, again, there's there's companies like Salesforce and others where it's hundreds and millions or billions. So it's the they have layering on, which is no matter how well this is working for me. I mean, I remember talking to a board member of, of New Relic years ago who said, well, we already have so many, like we're growing so fast with referrals and maybe it's marketing that we don't need to do prospecting. I'm oh. like, great, because you don't want more growth. It's not even that. I think at some point inbound leads plateau. Yep. And or outbound can plateau. It depends on the market. So whatever you're whatever you put all your eggs in, the basket you put it in, know that if you need to create the next time you need to create a new channel, it's probably six months, you know, four to twelve months to create that new channel. So if you are all dependent on outbound and then you want to go inbound, or all dependent on inbound and go outbound, or all dependent on seeds, relationships, and then add something else, you have to you should start like a year in advance. If you're starting from scratch. But you yeah. talked in the book about the CEO who says, I want to see growth in 90 days. And then you say, well, what's your normal sales cycle like? A year and a half. Yeah, or six months. Yeah. But that's kind of that impatience feeling because people wait too long. And they, because, you know, they think, oh, this will go on forever. Oh, but these inbound leads will just grow forever. And then when they don't and you hit a wall, you're like, oh, I need to fix this right now. I don't have 90 days. I don't have six months. I have to fix it in 30 days. Or, yeah. Yeah. Because I made promises to my board, so on, so on. It's way too long. They just, it can't, things don't happen that fast. So, Aaron, let me ask you a question that's on the mind of a lot of CEOs, sales, marketing people, and it's about sales and, and marketing alignment. And at one point in the book, you say, you know, goodbye sales versus marketing. Hello, revenue team. Mm-hmm. So, what should marketing and sales uh, be measuring to get them better aligned, get them to stop this un- uh, unproductive fighting. Yep. Well, there's always been this this uh, argument between sales and marketing, and there's reasons for that because they have different kind of values and goals typically and objectives. So I don't. The SDR team and function itself made a, has made a huge difference in helping bridge that gap. So SDRs, whether they're inbound SDRs or outbound. And That's a sales development rep. Yeah, sales development rep, sometimes called business development rep. Well, whatever the names are, these right. are the junior salespeople. And the inbound ones take marketing leads and they uh, respond to them and only pass the right ones to sales. Right. right. The outbound SDRs, the outbound people, do all the cold prospecting. So they're going to have to generate appointments for salespeople. And those functions, by those functions need to be separate. Yes. If you're someone who is has junior salespeople, whether you call them BDRs, SDRs, ABCs, CIAs, whatever they are, and you have the same people doing both inbound lead response and outbound prospecting is a big, big no-no. For many reasons, we could might need a separate episode on. Okay. Uh, but in terms of the alignment... We'll cover that on the third edition of the book. Yeah, that's what you said. Because, you know, look, if you're a marketer, if you're sending leads straight to salespeople, they're, they're not going to follow up on them. Unless it's like one, they're super, you know, sometimes you have like these super hot like demo leads that they, they just can't wait for, sure. But other than that, they're just, they're not. So you can't blame them because they're not going to, they're just not. And there's a lot, there's salespeople, you know, most of them, they're going to be busy. They're not, it's just not their thing. So rather than blaming them, having an SDR function to respond to inbound leads is the biggest step. But um, there's two other major things that p- companies can do. So there's probably three major things. You know, one is 
there really there is one single revenue leader, whether you know it or not. So there has to be one. Um, it's more common now for companies to have a chief revenue officer, mm-hmm. or like we do, we have a VP of revenue, and she owns sales and marketing. And sales and marketing both report up to whoever this person is, or maybe they own one. Maybe they really are the marketing person, but they also own sales. So that's one step. If you have a CEO and they have a VP of sales and VP of marketing, the CEO is the revenue leader. But here's the difference is that the revenue leader has to be hands-on enough with those functions to ensure that there's sync and coordination. Right. Most C-levels, the revenue leader by default is are too hands-off. They let marketing do their thing, sales do the thing. No, you need to be more hands-on. So that's number one. Recognize there is a revenue leader, whether you kind of acknowledge it or not. Uh, and number two, marketing needs to be measured on, you know, we suggest sales qualified leads. Mm-hmm. So marketing first has to have some kind of quota or metric. That's more common now. Well, that's aligned with sales and revenue, I would think. Yes. Yeah, because so they can generate a lot of crappy leads, and that's the complaint yeah. of so many salespeople. Right. And so the metrics on number of leads and cost per lead are better than not have something, but they're also in some ways worse because they just are so misleading. Mm-hmm. Right. I can generate, this goes back to seeds, nets, and spears. One seed lead, right, which could be a word of mouth, could be worth 100 or 500 marketing leads, like webinar leads. So if I have a goal of reaching 1,000 leads a month, you know, that doesn't, I can get lots of, of poor leads. Yeah, I'll so, raffle off a car. Yep. So what's a better metric? I mean, we recommend not just a lead commit, but a, a commit around basically sales qualified leads or sales right. accepted leads. Mm-hmm. And again, there's so many terms, but the, the type of lead that is a lead that has gotten passed to a salesperson and the salesperson has requalified it and accepted it into their pipeline. Right. And measuring that, because that's what sales cares about. Sales doesn't care about new leads or marketing. Sales doesn't care about marketing qualified leads either. That's not, they care about how many leads actually make it to the pipeline. And yes, there's more responsibility for both parties to define what does that mean? What are the qualification criteria? Um, and inbound or outbound opportunities are different. So there's different qual- criteria for those. So there's, they have, you do have to work together more closely. You can't just throw leads over the fence. Yeah. So not only do you have a single metric that both sides care about, but you have to be, you have to work together. You have to work together more closely and to make sure that it works and is doable. Right. So Aaron, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask one more question. And it's one that I first learned about when I read the first edition of your book a few years ago. And like several things in your book, it seared itself into my subconscious. Thanks, Ross. But it's a good thing. And it's, uh-huh. it changed your life dramatically. And I want you to explain what a forcing function is and how it works with Aaron Ross. Sure. Um, yeah, let's skip ahead towards further back in the book. So for me, you know, what I learned is that um, you know, I've got lots of great ideas, probably too many great ideas. And you got a few things and, going on, a few kids, a business. Yeah, I got some kids. Yeah. And back and, you know, really, I went from zero to nine, seven or nine kids in, nine kids in six years was like the biggest kind of growth, like hyper growth of the family. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, you're Aaron Ross, you're all about growth. You're all about hyper growth. So you're just living, you know, you're, you're leading by example. True. It's like hyper family growth, hyper personal growth. <laughs> it's your next uh, book. Yeah. So zero to lots of kids within six years. And then I grew my own income from, uh, under from like 70 ish thousand a year when I was single to 
11 times that in four years because, you know, I had to because it's a big family. And I wrote four books along the way at that same time and, uh, and so on. In our business, we grew a business from, again, small under 100,000 to now it's about five, four million-ish in that time. So it sounds like a lot, uh, and it is, but the way, and sorry, and I also really stuck to this work week of 20, 25 hours of most weeks of working. Because, and by the way, it's hard for me to work more than that with such a big family. So forcing, so the, the one thing that I think really, if you ask me, hey, what was, there's never one thing, by the way, and anyone who tells you there's one thing is full yeah. of shit. Or one marketing but, tactic or yeah, one, no, one no. closing expression. To- <laughs> no, yeah, it's retarded. They're just trying to sell you something. But there was one of the things that for me made the biggest difference in being able to do this and being able to make more money by a lot and to get things done and have time for my kids uh, to be a better parent and business person at the same time. And by the way, that whole topic is something I, I really want to develop over the next, you know, next. It's like, how do you integrate uh, your career and parenting rather than try to feel like you're balancing one or the other where mm. one wins or loses? Yeah, or feeling like you're doing one or the other wrong. Yeah, which, well, I don't know if that ever goes away because with parents. But um, forcing functions really for me are, you know, the thing with, with my, my family and us is we, there's lots of people who talk about things like adoption, but how many people actually do it? It's so easy to talk about stuff. How do you do it? Especially when you're tired and exhausted all the time. So forcing functions to me is the difference between, all right, you want to get back in shape. So A, do you go sign up for the gym to go work out? Or B, do you sign up to do a marathon and tell all your friends? Uh-huh. Right, that, that especially there's a deadline, there's a uh, fear of public, sort of, there's public commitment whether it's public commitment or public fear, public shame. So it's for me a committing to things in ways where I can't back down. Mm-hmm. Or you'll, or, you'll yeah. lose your honor. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's losing honor or whether it's a way to just make sure that I'm focused on something and have to do it. Right. Right. Um, there's, it's, it's a few things, but I will say like for, let's take the, the book from impossible to inevitable. The first time it came out, right? Huge, big family. How am I going to, and I have a business, I have a day job. I have to make money. I worked at Salesforce early, but not really enough where I have to make money. And so how I write a book on top of that book from scratch. So part of this was even by, I found a partner like Jason Lemkin. Um, we found a publisher and we took steps. We committed to dates and so then, like, it had to happen. I had people counting on me for my part of it. Mm-hmm. And there was dates. And, and like, a date just creates so much clarity. So yeah. I, I, I blocked out Wednesdays to write for, my, for what I did. So it forced me to, all right, work backwards. And it just kind of forced the prioritization and for me to block out the time and to do it and to not um, overthink it, not to be perfectionist in things. And just sometimes you just got to get things done. To get over either perfectionism, procrastination, resistance, fear of is this going to be good enough, um, to get into the flow of it and just like move it forward. So another forcing function is that another one would be, wow, you know, we do we want more kids? Okay, well, we want to adopt one. Let's even like sign the papers or if we, if my wife gets pregnant, it's like we just know that we'll just figure out how to manage things once the baby comes. If we start how to pay for it once the baby comes. Right. Uh, different example it's kind of this it's a little bit of the leap in the net will appear approach right right and you talk about how 
Of course, you concluded the book with a bit of Beavis and Butthead humor, which of course just spoke to me on a very deep um, <laughs> cycle. Was, I don't that was that, but... the one, and Beavis and Butthead for uh, maybe the younger listeners. That was a MTV uh, show of these two ill-behaved uh, teenage boys who were very immature. And uh, and I can remember when it would be on, my wife would say, turn that off. It was right after we'd gotten married, and she was probably thinking, like she still does, what was I thinking when I married this guy? But anyway, you talk about, a lot of people have smart goals, which a lot of people, you know, marketers have heard about these specific, measurable, assignable, realistic, and time-related goals. And those are all very, very helpful. They really help companies tie down realistic goals using that SMART acronym. But what you talked about is creating forcing functions made up of simple asses. <laughs> he said ass. <laughs> so number one is announce to others that you'll create a blank, a book, a marathon, or whatever. Number two, specific outcome by a whatever, and then by a specific date. So announce a specific outcome by a specific date. And then you go on to say, if you're an overachiever, you could possibly combine the two approaches into smart-ass goals, but that's too much for me. But <laughs> but Aaron Ross, that was not too much for the very immature host of the Marketing <laughs> Book Podcast. So Aaron, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Um, so here's the one thing is that you know growing a company, and by the way, these principles actually work for people and careers, if you just read it that way. Um, growing a company like growth can be more of a system than people realize. There's more of an engineering approach to, to it than people realize. It doesn't mean that it's easy, right? It can be simple, but not easy. But there are systems here. And I really, this, this book really encapsulates uh, so many years and so many billions of dollars of learnings between Jason and myself in terms of what creates growth and what doesn't. And I mean, this is where uh, even my own, you know, growing my income by 11 times and so on. It's a lot of the same principles here. It's the, you know, sort of be, be a specialist in an area. Mm -hmm. And the, the way you kind of describe that is important. Create opportunities for yourself, which is, you know, so nail niche, uh, predictable pipeline, sales, be a specialist, um, create, create opportunities, learn how to kind of sell and close them, and then some other steps. But it's... Uh, there's there's a formula there's a system towards creating more growth. It get part we didn't get to the part around it's going to take longer than you want. Right. And that's another painful truth. It, it, the thing whatever you want is going to take years longer than you want. And there'll be a year of hell. There's going to be a year of hell. Hopefully only one, maybe maybe more than one. But, but there that's will a be good a year thing. of hell. That's a good thing. Yep. It it's not a bad thing. Once you okay. get past it, right. And some of these the worst problems you have can the, the things that power you, your success in the future once you get through them, hopefully, if you have a growth mindset, but that there's a system here, right? It's not random. It's not luck. Anyone can, can get further on the path towards growing their businesses or their own income farther than they realize. And with, I know, I think people are calling this now the growth Bible. Um, we've wanted to put together a system that really, like, this really will change people's lives, this book. Like, I wish I could just take this book and the ideas and like stick them in people's heads because I can't think of how many companies or people even told me that if I wish, I wish I'd had this book years ago, would have, you know, changed my company, saved my company, done this, that, and the other. But this or I've had a company go out of business. I know that how painful it is. Two of the most painful experiences in my life were a company that went out of business and a divorce. And you were painfully honest in the book about this. 
Yeah. And I should add that the book is really, really inspirational. So the things we talked about, that was only, we were only scratching uh, the surface. Yeah, barely. Um, and I'm sorry, <laughs> but these <laughs> listeners, they've already driven to work. They're sitting in the parking lot waiting for this to end <laughs> so they can go in. So a, l- a little empathy here, Mr. Ross. So, But it's, it's so true about the system, and that's why we like working with manufacturers because there's lots of engineers there, and they get this. <laughs> they tend to be very... Uh, well, not all the engineers, but they tend to understand systems. When you present it in that way, there's usually some very big uh, yeah. pickup. I mean, I was an engineer, so I think that's a lot where this comes from. Is even Salesforce, they wanted to engineer some. Uh, I just didn't like all the randomness of uh, felt in sales, and you know, yes. are things going to work or not? And oh, wow! Um, so, did you study engineering as a undergrad? Civil engineering. Oh. I did computer computer science in high school. So I've coded, I mean, this is pre-internet, so it's more like MS-DOS, Turbo-C, Turbo-Pascal, Object-C, and uh-huh. uh, whether it's on, uh, I'd program, I actually back, if anyone remembers, Next Computers. Wasn't that Steve Jobs? Uh, yeah, back firm? before they sold it. Yeah, I worked uh, at NASA for a summer, and oh, Apple wow. for Claris for a summer, and okay. this, well, this is going way back, way back when. I didn't realize you had that engineering degree, and I'm actually, I'm interviewing another author, uh, Roger Dooley, author of Friction this week, and he, <laughs> chemical engineering background. I interviewed your former colleague, I think it probably is, uh, Teen Zwo, yeah. electrical yeah. engineering, about his excellent book, Subscribed, and there are so many engineers in marketing, uh, maybe there's something going on there, so... Yeah. Aaron, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Easiest is go to predictablerevenue.com, predictablerevenue.com. So there's about me. I do speaking. We have a predictablerevenue.com as a specialist in outbound prospecting, helping companies be successful there. And there will be links to the From Impossible to Inevitable book, which, of course, is on Amazon as well. Okay. Well, super. So I'm going to include links to uh, your site, the uh, Jason site, your LinkedIn profiles, your Twitter handles, all the books that you've mentioned on this episode's show notes, all at marketingbookpodcast.com. And I'll include a link to the book website. But there's also something else I'm going to include because I'm an excitable book nerd. As I was reading <laughs> your book, I thought of at least, I think it's up to nine or 10 other books that if you uh, liked this book, if you people read this book, and let's say you are in the startup world or the hyper-growth world. There are nine, at this count, nine other books. I may add a few others that have been on the podcast that are excellent follow-up reading to this. And I know you know uh, several of these folks. but And in fact, even one of them, The Sales Acceleration Formula by Mark Robert, as you talked about yeah, yeah, that's a great one. his book. And there were other folks. But, but there's about 10 books that I'm going to include on there because the other reason I'm doing this is because every day, on almost every day, LinkedIn, I'm getting uh, messages from listeners from around the world, and they're asking me for specific things. Or they'll say, hey, I just went to a startup, or we're going to go start this, or whatever. And I'm able to write what or, or write. I'm able to make uh, book prescriptions because I don't think they need to read 235 books to get started. There might be one. <laughs> or in this case, there's these these 10. So we're going to include that. And I hope that the listeners will also reach out to you to thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Obviously, you don't have much time during the day, and there's lots of podcasts that would, would like to interview you. So for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on whatever your favorite podcast app is, 
All these links can be found by going to this particular episode with Aaron and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is From Impossible to Inevitable, How SaaS and Other Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue. The authors are Aaron Ross and Jason Lemkin. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Really a pleasure to be here. And that closes the book on episode 236 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Roger Dooley to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. This is Aaron Ross, co-author of From Impossible to Inevitable, How SaaS and Other Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. You know what I'm just reminded of, Aaron, is when you did that the first time I interviewed you, you said that, and then you went, Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> oh, yeah, did I? <laughs> did. Sure, it was I very funny. <laughs> and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Dun, 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 dun.